You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we survey the books of the Bible one book at a time. I'm Drew Kaiser, and uh, Andrew Kingsley is with me as usual, and we're in the middle of 1 Timothy. We're ready for 1 Timothy chapter 4. And uh, this is going to be a good one for us, as is several of the other chapters in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, because we're ministers. And this is the first chapter, I think, that we've come to that is you know, almost exclusively about being a minister, the job that we have, uh, some interesting things. And we would have called this ministers or preachers or evangelists or something like that. Last week we did elders and deacons, and it would have made sense to do that, except that we know in Second Timothy we have a chapter like that coming up, so we're kind of saving the job description of a minister talk for then. Uh, Still, we're not going to be able to avoid a lot of stuff dealing with what ministers are supposed to do, and uh, this particular chapter emphasizes the words of a minister, or you could broaden that out to Christians in general, and we read, you know, typical of Paul, we're going to see things that ministers should not say and things that they should say. Yeah. There's a positive and a negative here, which really helps. I mean, it's sometimes easier to understand a, a concept to know it's negative. And yeah. so uh, we're going to look at both of those. And you'll see, as Andrew does the reading for us, how many times words comes up in this very short chapter of 16 verses, yeah. I think. So yeah. uh, why don't you take it away, Andrew, and uh, we'll read through this in a systematic function. All right. Function, fashion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, both of those things. Yeah, a function fashion. So like you mentioned, there is a, a positive side and a negative side to this. If you'll remember from previous uh, episodes we've done on First Timothy, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy as Timothy is in this situation in Ephesus where there's a lot of folks teaching false things. And we're going to get another reminder of that uh, later in verse 7 of this chapter. But you have these people teaching about these endless genealogies, myths, uh, all these things that aren't that Paul says are basically worthless. Uh, and that's what he's going to talk about first. So verses 1 through 5, we have words of deceit, so the negative side of this. Uh, now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, what is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's the first five verses of the chapter that you can see Paul specifically brings up two lies that are brought up by these deceitful spirits by these demons, as he calls them, who are teaching all these lies. And the two lies that he brings up are forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from certain foods. Um, And then he gets into, in verse 6, he's telling Timothy about the words of faith. He's going to tell him uh, what things he should do. Well, let's go ahead and read them, and then we'll go back through and observe some of the things that Paul is pointing out for Timothy. So starting in verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers... You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Verse 11, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So yeah, it's we, a pretty short chapter. Yeah, really should. short. 
Yeah, only 16 verses like you mentioned earlier. Um, so we have Paul giving Timothy here some words of faith, some things to go by, really some inv- advice inspired by the Holy Spirit on how Timothy can combat these words of deceit, how he can combat these liars, these deceitful spirits. First thing he tells him to do is stay focused. And we read that in verses 7 through 10 where he was talking about, you know, had nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Stay away from all the things that are going to distract you. Stay focused on the the objective. And in verse 10 he says, for to this end we toil and strive. So this is what we're striving for because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people. So basically he's saying, look, our focus is to train ourselves for godliness, not to train our our bodies, not to talk and debate all day about things that don't make uh, any difference. Uh, he says we need to stay focused on the words of faith. And in verse 16, the final thing in the chapter is keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. So he tells him to stay focused. Uh, the second thing he tells him to do is to command and to teach. And you see that in verse 6 where he tells him uh, to hold to the good doctrine that he has followed. You see that in verse 11, where Paul says, command and teach these things. And you see it in verse 13, where Paul tells him to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So he reminds him, if you want to refute these words of deceit, stay focused on the goal, remember the words of faith, command and teach them. And then the third and final thing is to be an example, which you see in the verse that everybody knows, verse 12, where he tells Timothy to um, not dis- let anyone to despise his youth, but to be an example. And then again, in verses 14 and 15, he tells him, uh, in verse 15, he says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. So a really short chapter that can be broken up according to the first five verses, you have words of deceit, And then the remaining 11 verses of the chapter are about Paul's instructions in the words of faith where he tells Timothy to stay focused, to command and teach, and to be an example. Can I say something else about the structure of this? Uh, You know, this is one of those chapters that probably should have been marked a little earlier. Uh, I really think chapter 4 begins in chapter 3, verse 14 if that makes sense. Uh, last week, we didn't talk about 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, because we were focused on elders and deacons. And so you have the, the qualifications of elders in the first part of the chapter. In the second part of the chapter, you have the qualifications for deacons. And we didn't really address verses 14 through 16. But in yeah. those verses, Paul basically tells Timothy, I'm writing these things so you will know, you as a minister will know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that really introduces First Timothy chapter 4, don't you think? Yeah, I, mean, I think so. You know, he's talking about, I'm going to tell you, Timothy, the preacher, the minister, uh, the servant of the Lord Jesus, I'm going to tell you how to conduct yourself in the church. Mm-hmm. And what we have here regarding words, that's one of the preacher's biggest responsibilities are words, uh, that's why he gets into all of that, because he's giving him instructions on how to do what he said in chapter 3, verse 15. So just Mm -hmm. to throw that in there, we haven't forgotten about the end of chapter 3. It just needs to be slipped in right here instead of last episode when we're talking about elders and deacons, I think. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I did not think of that. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, Well, I guess that'll do it for our reading. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back and dig a little bit deeper. As we come back on uh, this episode of 1 Timothy chapter 4, there are several items here that I wanted us to have plenty of time to talk about because uh, I'm I'm excited about talking about these things and also I'm hoping maybe Andrew can clear me up on a few things because there well, there's some big question up. marks in the margin of my Bible on this chapter. Don't get your hopes up. Oh, I've I've got high hopes for you. 
Oh, great. I will not look down on your youthfulness. Oh, thanks for that. I appreciate that. Uh, so, but before we get to that, let's look at uh, the first few verses of our passage. Uh, you know, first of all, he says, the Spirit explicitly says, which means the Spirit said in words. That, that's what explicitly or expressly, as it is translated in the ESV, that, that's what that means, is the Spirit said in words mm-hmm. versus impressions, impulses. Basically, it's different from the way everybody talks about the Spirit these days. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt this in my heart. The Spirit told me in my heart. And if you dig into that a little bit further, it means that they had a good feeling about it. Yeah, some is, kind of vague impression or feeling. Yeah, and, and that's not to say that people don't say God talks to them, because I've heard a lot of people say that as well. But this is anecdotal. I, this is not the result of any survey or poll. But yeah. usually when people talk about uh, miraculous communication from heaven, God spoke to them. The Spirit moved them. That's the way they look at those two things. Mm -hmm. And I believe God speaks to us through His Word, and I believe that's the way the Holy Spirit speaks to us as well, just to be full disclosure here, which is supported Mm -hmm. by that adverb expressly or explicitly. It means in words, which is the theme of the whole chapter. And so one thing I wanted to do, we tried to turn it into an outline. It just didn't work. Mm-hmm. I found 12 examples of words that Paul mentions in these 16 verses, and I'm just going to machine gun through them okay. just really quickly because, you know, there's. we'll say some about some of the things, some more about some of the things, but um, I don't think we want to develop this list. Um, so verse 1, he speaks of the words of the Spirit, the words of faith, and the words of demons. In verse 2, the words of liars... Verse 5, the words of God. Verse 6, the words of servants. Verse 7, the words of old women. Do we want to? I don't know if we want to touch that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He says that the myths are fitting only for old women. Yeah. Um, That's what he said. Any comments on that? No, let's go. (laughs) Verse 9, words of trust. Verse 12, words of example. Verse 13, words of scripture and words of exhortation. And then finally, verse 14, he mentions words of prophecy. So I think we're safe in assuming that the main theme of this chapter is words. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I agree with you on well, that. Let, let's go back to verse 1 now. The Spirit in words says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. So this is another phrase that a lot of people have differences of opinion about. When did the later days begin? The later times, uh, the latter days. It's called all these different things. And Paul is definitely saying that, um, you know, some certain things will happen in later times, but he doesn't exactly define when those will come. Now, I would say that most people assume that he's talking about some kind of time preceding the end. Yeah. But I think I I think that if you compare that with scripture you can't you can't support that idea. There yeah. are a lot of scriptures on the later times and one of the one of the ways that I look at this is from the perspective of the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Acts 2 is where the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit, start speaking in tongues and their critics accuse them of being drunk. And Peter says, we're not drunk. This is what Joel said when he said, in the latter times, yada, yada, yada. You know, in the latter times. So what he's saying is, Joel said that these are the latter times. Yeah. Which was 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So we've already past that threshold. We're not waiting on them. We are in them. And I'm not just taking that from Peter's uh, sermon on Pentecost, because you see similar things in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Um, mm-hmm. in, in previous times, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets in many ways. But in these last days, he speaks to us through his son. Okay, so there again, the writer, along with Peter, is saying we are already in the latter days. 
Yeah. You've got um, this phrase used in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. And then I also want to take us over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and note similarities between this and what we just read from 1 Peter, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 4. Um, evidently, a lot of people at Thessalonica were worried about the end of time. And Paul calms them down a little bit by saying, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, from the Greek apostasia, from which we get our word apostasy, until the rebellion comes and the man of lawlessness is revealed. I don't want to open a can of worms here, but he says two things are going to happen before the coming of the day of the Lord. An apostasy, which means a falling away, or a rebellion, and the man of lawlessness will be revealed. I am pretty. I have a pretty good guess at what one of those items mean. I'm a little foggier on the other one. Um, the first item, the falling away, the apostasy, mm-hmm. is what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 4, right? Because he says, the Spirit says in latter days, which began with Peter at Pentecost, some will fall away from the faith, mm-hmm. which is the verb form of apostasy. Apostasy yeah. means a falling away. Paul says this is going to happen, and that's what he he told the Thessalonians in Second mm-hmm. Second Thessalonians. So, um, where am, where am I going with this? Uh, We're talking you know, about these the two things, two things have yeah. to happen before Jesus comes back. I think we definitely have seen the falling away, which is just a general decline of Christianity away from the faith. In other words, God's Word. And in general, Christianity started that slide about the 4th century. You know, it was a long time ago, and there was a clear break of falling away, um, you know, by the 600s. And I don't want to get into all the history of that. It's pretty well documented. Um, Now, who the man of lawlessness is, there are all kinds of opinions on that. I don't want to get into that. And maybe he hasn't yet been revealed. I think that probably what Paul was talking about here has happened, which may be the personification of evil, um, something going hand in hand with the falling away. I don't know. But the point is, uh, these are things that could have happened a long time ago. It's not necessary for us to take a position that the latter days have to do with the end of time or some kind of rapture theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also um, speaks to our friends, the the Latter-day Saints. Uh, they believe that the Latter Days began in 1830 when Joseph Smith supposedly discovered some hieroglyphics on tablets and they were interpreted for him and became the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the problem that they have with these verses is that many of the inspired writers say these are the latter days. We're already in the latter days. Mm-hmm. So I know that's that's a lot, and I'm probably just confused a lot of people, but you know that I see a tie-in, I guess is what I'm saying, yeah. between the falling away that Paul is predicting in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and the falling away that he predicts in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'm also trying to help us understand biblically what latter days means. It means the Christian age, the, the final will and testament of the Lord Jesus that was established in his blood. We're already here, and uh, these things are very capable of happening in the here and now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, these people who fall away, he says they pay attention to doctrines or teachings of demons. And I don't think we have to read anything supernatural into that. I don't know. What do you think? I think he's just talking about false doctrine. Yeah. Because the devil is characterized by lies. Any doctrine full of lies is a doctrine of demons or doctrine of devils. Yeah, that deceitful spirits reminds me of a phrase in First John, right? Yeah, many... Uh, to yeah. test the spirits. Uh, talking there about basically weighing what people are telling you to see if they're really from Christ or not. So, yeah, I don't think it's anything supernatural there. We're just talking about people that are lying, and certainly in the context, that's what fits. 
Well, he does give us some examples of demonic doctrines, Mm -hmm. which helps us define that in a less sensational way. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, for example, uh, verse three, they were forbidding marriage and they were advocating abstaining from foods. Yeah. And so we've seen those kinds of things in religious history. I mean, they're in the Roman Catholic Church. Priests are forbidden from marrying. Uh, they're not supposed to do that. And there have been problems as a result of that. And there's nothing in the Bible that says being single is more holy than being married. Yeah. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 13, I think it's verse 4, the marriage bed is undefiled. You know, that means it's it's holy. God has made it holy. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about how the home becomes holy through marriage. Uh, so there's no way that marriage is less holy than being single. That's that's a doctrine of demons, as Paul puts it. Um, yeah. Uh, and Paul, even you know, in 1 Corinthians 7, he does talk a little bit about this, and he does say um, in verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Then when you go to Ephesians 5, you know, Paul basically gives his regulations for marriage. So, you know, it's obviously the gospel does not teach that it's better for you. It's always 100% better for your spiritual life to remain single than it is for you to get married. Um, yeah, yeah and there of, can be some, I like the way you put that, because there can be some reasons not to get married. Yeah. But which then, Paul, you know, exercised in his own life. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of so many people that their marriage has gotten them closer to where they need to be spiritually mm-hmm. rather than further away. So if you marry the right kind of spouse, you know, how many scenarios do you see where someone actually brings their spouse to Christ? But there's more scenarios, I think, of where you have two um, Christian people who through their marriage, you know, they're both helping each other grow continually, which yeah. is definitely an asset uh, to your spiritual growth and not a, not a detriment. Hindrance. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I do think, I want to get your opinion on this, Drew. So the two lies we have here are marriage or forbidding marriage and forbidding eating certain foods. And then Paul brings up in verse seven and eight about training yourself for godliness he says, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Do you think there's some kind of theme lying behind these false teachers of, you know, there's something to be said about, you know, the physical things are all bad. You know, marriage, indulging yeah. in your physical desires, bad. Eating certain types of food, filling your body with these Unclean unholy foods. things is yeah. bad. So make sure your body is trained and kept away from all these, I guess, contaminating things. Do you think there's like some kind of asceticism yeah. behind these false teachers? I do, which is funny because um, I've heard verse 8 used all my life to support physical exercise or to support the, the value of hmm. taking care of your body. There's no doubt that physical exercise is good and taking care of your body is good. But, uh, you know, here's how the usual proof texting goes on this. Uh, Paul says bodily exercise is only of little profit, but little profit is of some profit. Mm -hmm. So you need to take care of your body, which is not the point that Paul was making. You know, he's saying you're it's like you said, he's saying you're focused all on your body. And really, the discipline here is probably the deprivation of things your body wants, food, water, comfort, mm-hmm. um, things like, you know, whipping yourself in the back or yeah. fasting excessively and things like that are mm-hmm. common practices in Paul's day as people thought, well, I hurt my body, that makes me more holy. And Paul's saying, no, no, godliness is where the prophet is. And this is not godliness. Being single, I mean, it could be done for the glory of God, but getting married could be done for the glory of God. Eating only vegetables or avoiding meat that had been sacrificed to idols, you can do that to the glory of God, but not necessarily. I mean, this other person who has a clean conscience when it comes to eating meat, 
they can be pleasing to God as well, as long yeah. as it is blessed through the Word of God in prayer, which is something he mentions uh, in verse 5. As long as that occurs, um, you know, it's fine. And so what yeah. he's saying is, think about godliness. That's the important thing. Um, I think another thing I'll throw in there, and I know you already know this, but the word translated bodily exercise or discipline comes from the Greek gymnasia. That's not exactly mm-hmm. how you say it in Greek, but so people can hear the origin of our word gymnasium or gym. Uh, this has to do originally with activities in the Greek gymnasiums yeah. where people exercise just like we do at the gym today. There's, there's one uh, difference, though, uh, back Big then difference. in the Greek culture. I don't think this was true in the Jewish culture, but in the Greek uh, culture, it was uh, customary for people to exercise naked, yep. um, which is weird, you know, but it's really that's weird. actually the, uh, the, the first meaning of the word gymnasia is naked. Yeah, I just, I mean, I don't, I'm not really keen on getting a gym membership anyway, but if that little tradition was still around. I'm out. Yeah. I'm totally out. Totally. And out. there's so many more things that I could say that I'm not going to. Yeah, we're just going to uh, leave that. You think about it on your own. <laughs> Um, you know that but, that was that's not a biblical thing. That's just what the culture did in those days. Just yeah. to be clear, we'll we'll put a pin in that there. Let me ask you this: um, verse five. Now I don't know how much time you'll spend talking about this, or if you do. Verse five. It says, uh, "Well, let's back up and get the context." In verse four, um, everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. First made holy by the word of God in prayer. So let me ask you this. Could somebody take this and say, well, nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it's made holy by the word of God in prayer? I mean, can I say, does that mean literally nothing should be rejected? So if, you know, you could use that in so many different contexts to justify so many different things. But how, Mm -hmm. you know, how does that, how could we, you know, make a case against that? Well, I think you just read it in context. Something that this podcast has done for me and hopefully for our listeners is we've looked at some of these proof texts like verse 8 in this lesson and you put them in the context and you see that doesn't that's not about getting enough exercise and diet. Mm-hmm. That's about godliness. And so he's talking about this this item in verse 3 abstaining from foods. Mm-hmm. Which has to do with the culture the Greeks grew up in of idolatry. And in their minds, they couldn't separate the idol from the meat that was sacrificed to the idol. And so many of them that had, um, you know, serious reservations about that became vegetarians. But they did it for the Lord. Uh, Then you have the Jewish kosher rules about clean and unclean animals. You see Peter struggling with that in Acts 10 after the new covenant had been established and he was struggling with going over to the house of Cornelius and and all of that. And in Galatians 2, you see Peter still struggling with it. So this was a serious issue for them if it's not for us today. So, um, you know, I think, I guess, to answer your question about what is sanctified by means of the Word of God in prayer, in verse 5, that's the food that you eat, whether it's clean or unclean according to the old law or sacrifice to idols or not. If you feel convicted that the Word of God liberates you from those distinctions, and if it is blessed by prayer, and there is a recognition that these good things come from God, and we're thankful for that, then Paul says you can eat what you want to eat. And yeah. uh, it's kind of like what he says in Romans fourteen twenty three: Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. Whatever doesn't proceed proceed from faith is sin. That's a parallel passage, yeah. positive and negative. The negative is if you can't eat it with faith, you have sinned. The positive is if you if you can recognize that the word of God and prayer has blessed this, then by all means, bon appetit. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really good explanation. And the Word of God makes, I mean, it agrees with Paul's statement here where he says it's clean. Uh, in Acts 10, where Peter has the vision, yeah, uh, where this food comes down, it's animals and reptiles and birds of the air. A voice comes to Peter says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, No, Lord, I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. The voice of the Lord came a second time and said, What well, God has made clean, 
do not call uncommon. And See, so, that's the Word of God. Yeah. It's short, but that's what the Word of God says about food there. Right. It's, it's part of Paul's argument. Yeah, so it's got to be, like, when we say it's made it's made uh, clean, made holy, sorry, made holy mm-hmm. by the Word of God in prayer, that means, okay, the Word of God, the Bible, speaks about this yeah. and says that it's holy. So mm-hmm. what makes it holy if, if God's Word says it's holy it's holy. And like you said, I'm really glad you brought up that passage in Corinthians about um, eating with a good conscience and having it line up with your faith and Romans. going there with prayer. Oh, yeah, Romans. But it, it is, you can read about this in Romans 14 and 15. You can read this in uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10. Yeah, there's all kinds Acts of... Acts 10, like you read a minute ago. Yeah. There's a lot on this. Food sacrificed to idols was a huge deal. Yeah, not so much church. for us today, which that's why we get confused about what he's saying here. Yeah. Uh, do we want to do the worldly fables fit only for old women or myths? I've said as much about that as I want to say. <laughs> Same here. I mean, I would um, direct our listeners to our discussion of chapter one. I think we talked about what the myths were enough yeah. in that. Sounds like daytime soap operas or something. Yeah. When you say silly myths fit for old women, it makes me think of daytime soap operas. Right. And... and <laughs> Elderly ladies will get uh, plenty of compliments from Paul in the next chapter. Right. And so um, we got to see all that he's saying here, and and I think maybe this will be cleared up next week. I sure hope so. When we talk about yeah. 1 Timothy chapter 5. What about verse 10? There's I got a question mark in my Bible right here. I think, I've, okay. I, think I know what Paul is saying, but um, I want to discuss this a little bit. Uh, he says, you know, we're striving for godliness, labor and striving for it, because we fixed our hope on the living God. And then he describes God as the Savior of all men, especially believers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the question is, is he saying that all people will be saved? That's yeah, universalism. Yeah. And I'm sure some people use that. As a, as to support universalism, the oh, idea that yeah. all people are saved, nobody's going to hell, nobody's condemned. Um, but then the people that believe are even more saved. Yeah. Okay. Because we have the, especially of those who believe. Yeah, it's like saved a little, saved. saved a lot. Yeah. And and look, you we're laughing at this, but people have worked out levels of hell and heaven, and yeah, you know, degrees of how much eternal life you get. I mean. I, I the Bible doesn't teach that, and so there's a red flag here. You know when somebody throws out universalism, there and like you said, there's a difference here between the all people and the believers. Yeah. So what is the difference? And I think this is this is the way I look at it in my mind. I want to see if you agree. Okay. I think what he's saying is, for all people, God is the Savior. Jesus Christ is the Savior. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like a Greek god over in Europe, and then in Asia, some ancestor or Buddha in India and in Japan. It's mm-hmm. not, there. there's one savior for all mankind. There's only one hope of salvation. Yeah. Now, you can choose to reject him, and that's where there's a difference between the world, all people, and the believer, because the believer mm-hmm. is definitely saved because he's doing both he has both Jesus' work and his faith combining together. That's not necessarily the case with all people who have the same Savior but may not respond to him in faith. Yeah, that's exactly what I think it means. Because it oh. lines up you know, with what the rest of Scripture teaches. In chapter 2 and verse 6 of the same book, uh, he is called a ransom for the sins of all. So, okay, yeah. So Tasted I, death for all men. Uh Hebrews yeah. 2 9. Yeah. Right? So, so the question is yeah. so take some random guy on the street, who's his savior? God. Take the next random guy on the street, who's his savior? God. You know, he is everyone's savior. Now, whether or not they choose to to uh, care to know him or not, mm-hmm. now whether or not they choose to believe is their own thing, but that doesn't change the fact that he's still their savior. So yeah, and I, I just thought of another verse, 1 John 2, verse 2. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the... Uh, just let me... 
he's a propitiation not for us only, but for the whole world. Yeah. Well, he is, yeah, he's, that sacrifice was made for the whole world, but mm-hmm. in order for it to do any good, you've got to believe in it. You've got to respond in faith. Right. So, I, yeah, that's, at first it seemed really complicated, but you start looking at it in the context of the yeah. whole New Testament, it's pretty clear what he's saying here. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, so what else do we need to talk about here? Um, what about verse 14, uh, where he says, well, first of all, I want to point out the word play in verses 14 and 15. He says, literally, do not be careless towards the gift within you. And then in verse 15, he's literally saying, be careful with these things. Mm-hmm. So he says, don't be don't be careless when it comes to these things. Be careful about these things. Mm-hmm. That's the effect of it. Now, what is he talking about here in verse 14 with regard to a spiritual gift bestowed on him, on Timothy, through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the elders? Yeah. What is that? I'm asking you a question. Well, I'll give you... I'll give you my answer for it. Okay, thank you. Um, I would say his gift is definitely, so in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul lists out some of the gifts there that people get, some of the gifts that are mentioned are teaching, preaching, exhorting, right? Uh, Let the one who exhorts, you know, let the one who teaches all these things. Um, So his gift that he has Looks like it's definitely the gift of ministry, which is going to involve teaching, it's going to involve preaching, it's going to involve Well, he calls it a, a spiritual gift. Mm-hmm. And in the light of 1 Corinthians 12, spiritual gift is a miracle, right? Well, I mean, in that same list, that's where those gifts of like teaching, these are all you know equally gifts of okay. the same spirit, right? Yeah. So with spiritual gifts, you get uh, in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 12, one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith, to another gifts of healing, so there's a miraculous one, to another the working of miracles and prophecy, so there's another yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, so there's all kinds of different So he may have had gifts. one or more of those. Yeah. Uh, we, we saw, by the way, Prophetic utterances mentioned in chapter one of this book, where uh, he told Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, wage the good warfare, fight the good fight. No. So, evidently, when he had become a Christian, or maybe soon after that, there had been this very special moment in Timothy's life where older men laid their hands on him. Prophets spoke of his value to the kingdom in some general way that we don't know. We don't know the specifics. Right. And it seems also that a spiritual gift was bestowed upon him, which makes me think that the older men here have to be apostles because only apostles had the power to lay their hands on people and impart spiritual gifts. And Paul did that very frequently. Right. You can see it through the book of Acts um, and in other places the apostles doing that when they visit places. Yeah, I definitely think that that fits in with Timothy's background. Certainly if he, he gets, he joins with Paul and starts traveling with him, you know, I'm sure at some point, maybe, I don't know, before he left uh, where he initially met Timothy or maybe somewhere on the trip. But it looks like, Paul, maybe accompanied by other apostles, maybe not, maybe accompanied by elders of a congregation, you know, lay their hands on him. Uh, and this prophecy, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, like, well, 300 years ago, you know, so-and-so said there will be a man named Timothy. Oh, yeah, who yeah. Who will preach, you know, this that, prophecy. It's not prediction. Yeah, 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 right. It's not necessarily prediction. It could just be one of the apostles standing there in the circles that lay their hands on him and say, this is, Timothy, and he is, you know, he is given this gift of ministry, and he will go on to teach and blah blah blah. You he know, has a sincere faith. Yeah, like Paul says, and yeah, um, so kind like of, you know, he is. You've been given this gift to be able to teach and to do these things, and you have been legitimized 
by the words of, you know, maybe not an apostle, uh, but you've been legitimized by the laying on of hands and by these words spoken of a prophet. So, you know, you don't be careless with this authority that's been given to you and with the gifts that you've been given and the abilities that you've been given to be able to do. Don't just treat that flippantly. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, be very careful with it. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. And then at the end, you know, there's a big responsibility on Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So Timothy has a really big responsibility. It's not something that he can just be careless with. Say, you know, you've been given this big responsibility. You've been given these gifts. You've been given this uh, authority. Uh, it's, be very careful with it because what you choose to do with it is going to have a direct effect on all these people that are in Ephesus and that are listening to you teach. Yeah. Another bit of instruction comes to mind from 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul says in verse 32, the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Okay, so some person may be reading this and saying, why does Paul have to say this to Timothy if he has prophecy or miraculous knowledge, miraculous faith, miraculous wisdom? One of those, or maybe all of them, are probably spiritual gifts Timothy possessed. You could abuse prophecy in those days just as we can abuse Scripture can tell the wrong prophecy at the wrong time. You can talk over somebody else. You can yeah. be ugly in your attitude while the truth is coming out of your mouth, etc., etc. So, um, you know, Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 14, let the prophets speak if there's no one to interpret the tongues, and let them speak in turn, not over on top of each other, because the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Mm-hmm which is very different than what you see in the charismatic movement today, where folks are just, you know, jabbering nonsense words that nobody can understand mm-hmm. over the top of each other in a way that they seem to be possessed and somebody else's will has taken over them and they're just, you know, erupting with prophecy. Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 14 and in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that uh, those who have this miracle, they should control it and use it for the good of God, and not, um, you know, get carried away with it. Be careful about it. That that's what makes me think. Take in a New American Standard Bible says verse fifteen. Take pains, you know, yeah. devise, think about what you're going to do before you do it. That's what that mm-hmm. word means. Um, it was used by the way of orators who practice their speeches. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in preaching, I try to have a few quiet moments to kind of practice my sermons. Maybe I do that out loud. Maybe I think it in my head or just quietly read to myself. It depends on where I am. But I like to do that because it helps me, you know, my memory and my delivery and all of that. Yeah. And he's basically telling Timothy, you've got uh, this gift, but you need to discipline yourself to use the gift. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, we, we're about out of time here for this segment. I want to save some time for the application, but uh, there's, you know, it never fails. We look at something we think is going to be really simple, and it gets really deep fast. And mm-hmm. so I'll, that's what I love about the Bible and one of my motivations for doing this podcast. Um, we'll finish it up. We're going to take a little break and bring some practical applications to you in the next segment. draw our attention to the first part of the chapter again. Like I said, we're going over this three times. So in verse 2, something very interesting is stated by Paul to Timothy with regard to these doctrines of demons. He says, and I'm reading from the New American Standard here to give us a slightly different translation, um, by means of of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So you get the picture there of, you know, a rancher or whatever taking a hot iron out of a fire, applying it to the hide of the animal, 
and it burns a symbol into the animal's hide where the hair can't grow and there's no feeling there anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just tough, tough leather with no feeling whatsoever. It's a dead part of that animal once it happens. Except that he's not talking about branding animals. He's talking here about the conscience. Mm -hmm. And so the lesson here is if you violate your conscience enough times, you can get to the point where you don't have a conscience anymore. Or you have a conscience, but it is dead. Yeah. And I heard an interesting Native American legend a long time ago, which said that they conceived of the conscience as a a triangle in the chest of an individual with mm-hmm. three sharp edges. And every time you violated your conscience, it would turn or spin in your chest, which initially gives you feelings of obligation and guilt, pain. You feel mm-hmm. the pain. But after time, the corners of that triangle get dull and the flesh that is cutting becomes hard and callous and you can't feel it anymore. Yeah. And it's interesting how close that image is to what Paul's saying here in verse 2. Uh, we need to listen to our conscience. Sometimes yeah. we call it desensitizing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, the more you do a thing, the more you... And this is specifically talking about lying. You know, so lying implies that you're deceiving everybody. And hypocrisy. And no one yeah. ever finds out. So, mm-hmm. you know, the more you do this kind of thing, and especially the more you you do something that breaches your conscience and you get away with it. You know, the more you do that, the more that it just starts to chip away to where eventually, you know, it doesn't even bother you when you do it anymore. You've officially justified it in your mind. It's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that it's wrong doesn't even, you know, you understand that it's wrong, but you don't care. Now, let me ask you this. If, let's say we've got some folks listening that feel like they're in that kind of a situation to where, man, you know, I, I've let myself get involved in this and this and this, and that doesn't even bother, anymore, bother me anymore. How do I get out of that? So how would you recommend for somebody that feels like their conscience has been seared? Mm-hmm. So if they've got a lot of callus built up on their conscience, how can they get rid of it? A good rule of thumb is to act like you feel, act as if you feel like doing something, and eventually the feelings will come back. So I don't think that this is a permanent condition. It doesn't have to be a permanent condition. Yeah. But when you first begin, you have to start with your mind and make the choice mentally, not emotionally. In- intellectually would be a better word. You yeah. make the intellectual choice to do what's right, and eventually the conscience will come back. It's going to take time, though. Mm-hmm. So that that's what I think. That's the only option you've got. Of course, how do you gotta, start worrying about it if you don't have a conscience anymore? So, yeah, um, you got to make the, I guess, the commitment at the outset to be determined. You know, hey, this is this is wrong. I, this should make me, you know, feel, you know, like I've done something wrong, and maybe almost teaching yourself, yeah, you know, how to make it wrong again in your own mind. I just thought of another helpful thing. And this is hard. But sometimes those feelings aren't there because you haven't seen the consequences of your behavior. Yeah. And so confession, accountability, bringing your sin into the light and seeing the effect that it has on the other person can jumpstart those feelings. I really think. Because I think a lot of these kinds of sins have a degree of anonymity to them. Mm-hmm. Um, where somebody thinks, eh, I'm not hurting anybody. Nobody knows. I would hate for my parents to find out. Yeah. But I'm in a different city from them. They don't know what I'm up to. I can put on a good act when I'm on the telephone with yeah. them. Um, but in that, one of those, if one of those telephone conversations turns to the problem that you're dealing with, whatever it is, and you hear the disappointment, the heartache of your loved ones, the feelings come back. Yeah. You know, I think. Yeah, that's so, a good point. Uh, what else are we going to talk about? Um, I want to bring up in verse 6 uh, where Paul tells him, if you put these things before the brothers. So when he says these things, he's talking about pointing out the the obvious error of the false teachers. And it's interesting yeah. 
The NIV translates that, point out these things to the brothers. Literally, it's, I think, to place under or to place near. Um, some trans or some commentators actually would translate this as to suggest and say that this probably apply or yeah, that this probably implies a gentle approach to correct the errors in Ephesus. And yeah. you know, I, I think there are times when it's good to have a gentle approach, and we get to Titus two. Uh, we'll talk about that where he tells him to to teach in such a way that the opponents have nothing negative to say about him. Mm-hmm. But that also needs to be balanced with what you read in verse 11, where Paul tells him, command and teach these things. So the idea, you know, he gives him a couple different methods. You know, maybe in one scenario, it's best to just point it out to suggest it. Um, and then in another context, it's better for us to, you know, be a little more bold and to be able to command and teach. But I think both of those different types of teaching have their place and are both very useful mm-hmm. in certain contexts and just worthless in others. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. And it reminds me of Second Timothy 4, where in verse 2 he says, uh, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and patience. Yeah. Three different kinds of... of uh, Three different kinds of speech, I guess, is what I mean. Yeah. Um, and maybe all three of those are wrapped up in one lesson or one set setting. Yeah. Now, talking about that, <clears throat> well, I get. Well, let me go to this, and we'll back back up again. Um, verse thirteen, because I, I want to jump to that because it's similar to what you were just saying. He says, "Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching." And so that's a really interesting, it's like a three-point sermon in a way. Yeah. I believe what he means by public reading of Scripture is just like we do at the first part of the podcast. You do a reading, maybe just an entire letter or a section of it, or maybe from the Old Testament, because, you know, Timothy's Bible was basically the Old Testament right now. Yeah. But then he had the prophecy and he had Paul's letters and probably a gospel account or two. We don't know exactly what he was carrying around. We do know they regarded these New Testament books as they were being written as Scripture. But he would start with the reading, and then exhortation would be the persuasion or the encouragement to follow the Word of God. You know, and maybe going back and highlighting a particular thing and saying, you know, God wants this, not that. Mm-hmm. And then the teaching would be the interpretation. Um you know, explaining what the text means. And he may not have done that in that order, but Paul's saying, when you get up in the pulpit, do those three things. Make sure you read from the Word of God, encourage people to follow it, and tell them what it means, because not all of them are going to understand it just from the bare reading of it. And so um, that's a really interesting bit of advice for any preacher. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And I know this isn't necessarily in a worship setting, but Acts 2 is what I was thinking of. You know, it's interesting that Peter does, he reads these, well, he's probably not reading it, he's probably quoting it, but, you know, he goes through these prophecies that are mentioned, so he has the text there, and he explains to them what it means in between, you know, as he's reading these, or as he's quoting these passages in between, he explains what they're about, um, and then when he gets to the end, you know, he gives them the the exhortation of saying, you know, um, in verse 40 of Acts 2, it says, With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, yeah. saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, you know, even in Peter's lesson in Acts 2, I know it's not a worship setting like Timothy would have been in exactly. I don't know about that because they were in Jerusalem for a very special feast day, yeah. which was regarded as worship to begin with. And uh, so I, th- I think yeah, it's a perfect it's, example. I think it's a really good example. Um, better than I thought it was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Don't sell yourself short. Yeah. Really those, good. those three things are definitely evident. And, you know, not that dissimilar to the way we do teaching now in worship services. Cause worship, I hope not. Yeah, we're yeah. S- we should still follow that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how many sermons start out, you know, with, okay, here's the scripture that we're going to be studying this morning or tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'll read it. Okay, now here's our outline of it. Now we're going to go through this outline, explain what it means. 
then at the end of every lesson, you know, there's always a, now this is what it means for you now. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, if any of the things that we've talked about have made you realize you need some help, then we're going to give you a chance to get some help. You know, so most of the sermons I think that you hear based pretty much anywhere, um, mm -hmm. you'll get those three basic components. Now, sometimes you might get two of those components. Yeah. Uh, depending on, you know, what the, I guess, the nature of um, the lesson that you're hearing. Mm -hmm. One of those might be left out, but for the most part, I think you get all three of those. Yeah, and you might say, you know, people have asked, what's the difference between teaching and preaching? I don't think there's a huge difference. I guess it depends yeah. on the person. But uh, this may be the difference, because in preaching you have all three of these things. Not necessarily, you don't necessarily have the exhortation in a Bible class, but yeah. you probably should. So I don't know if we should make that distinction. Yeah, because um, teaching, you would think teaching a Bible passage involves you know, understanding what the passage is itself. But then if you're really going to fully teach it, doesn't that also involve the exhortation that goes yeah. with it? I mean, what good is it if you just have an academic discussion about it? There has yeah. to be some exhortation. Hey, run out of time here. Do you want to do verse 12? I know a lot of times we shy away from the verses that people think of the most, I guess because we assume that everybody understands it. But... You know, what is, so he tells Timothy not to let anybody look down on his youthfulness, which brings up another question about his age. I don't know that it really matters, but I think a lot of people think of Timothy as a teenager here, and yeah. we think he had to have been a grown man. Right. Uh, maybe not married, maybe a young man, definitely a young man. But what did they regard as young in their society versus what we think today? I, I don't know. Well, I think young is, I mean, if you ask a 70-year-old what young is, they'll say 50. If you ask a 50-year-old what young is, they might say 30. If you ask a 30-year-old what young is, they'll say 15. You know, mm -hmm. youth is relative pretty much. Yeah, it is. It's are. very relative. But, yeah. you know, I think here there's a lot of uh, good scholarship to say Timothy's probably somewhere around age 30. Um, there's one commentator who goes as far to say 30 to 35 years old. But he's, like you said, he's probably a grown man at this point. He's just a young man. Uh, and I, I really think that it's interesting that we're talking about, you know, he says, let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example. And I think this says a lot about, you know, Timothy, although he's a young man, how is he going to earn the respect and you know, the legitimacy that he needs to be heard by his people. You know, so how is he going to be taken seriously enough by the Christians in Ephesus to where they'll actually listen to his teaching over the teachings of maybe some of these false teachers are older, seasoned men, you know, and I think, hmm. you know, one of the hallmarks of being young is to really be idealistic and to talk about all these ideals and things that, hey, we need to do this and this and this. But how many kids, you know, that talk about that, you know, like, why, we need to spend all our time reading our Bible. And then, you know, as soon as Bible class yeah. is over, they're on their cell phones playing all their games. And oh, yeah, yeah. Off and, you know, they talk about it, but they don't do it. Right. And, so, you know, I think we're running out of time, so I want to throw this one in. I think we forget the example many times and uh, until it's too late, and that teachers and preachers, uh, elders, whoever, you know, all Christians need to put the words together with the, the actions. Right. And, you know, being an example in all these ways, that's a pretty heavy burden he puts on Timothy. Speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. But he knew that people would listen to Timothy's words more if they saw God in his life. And so I yeah. think, you know, that's really important for people today as well. Wish yeah. we could talk about it more. And I do think it applies not just to ministers, but to every. Christian. Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah, this is not, I mean, it's especially ministers, but all Christians would do well to follow that. Yeah. Uh, thanks for joining us in this episode of the 66 podcast. Uh, we're going to get into 1 Timothy chapter 5, which I look forward to next week. And uh, thank you all for listening and your, your comments and your encouragement really helps us out and motivates us to get in there every week and put up an episode uh check out if this is the first time you're listening to us check out our website the 66.net we've done several books the way that we're doing first timothy 
and you might be interested in that as well. So next time, 1 Timothy chapter 5 on the 66.